So last week, we left David hiding out in Ramah with Samuel while King Saul sends wave after wave of assassins. And every time the Holy Spirit falls on the assassins and they can't finish the job because they're too busy praising the Lord. (laughs) I think that's great. Even Saul himself can't make it there. The Holy Spirit falls on him, the heaviest of all. So David finally escapes from Ramah and goes to Saul's son, Prince Jonathan, and says, what in the world have I done to make your father so mad at me? Why is he trying to kill me? And Jonathan says, what? No way. Surely if he meant to kill you, he would have told me about it. And David says, no, he wouldn't, Jonathan. He knows how close we are. I'm telling you, there's just one step between me and death. And Jonathan says, well, what can I do to help? You know, I'll do anything I can to help you. And David says, well, there's a new moon celebration tomorrow and the next day where we all come together for sacrifices and a feast. And I'm supposed to sit at the king's table, but I dare not go for fear of my life. Instead, I'm going to hide out in your practice field. If your father remarks on my absence, Tell him I begged you to let me go to Bethlehem for a family reunion. And if he says, oh, that's good, then we'll know it's safe for me to come back. But if he gets mad, you'll know that he has murder in his heart, Jonathan. If you determine that I'm guilty of a crime against him, then you execute me yourself. But if I am innocent, please don't turn me over to him. And so Jonathan walks David out to the field. Now, this is the field where Jonathan practices his archery. So it's not going to be at all suspicious when he comes out here later. Remember that Jonathan's a master archer and well-respected and beloved by all the soldiers. So as David and Jonathan look around the field, Jonathan says, here's what we'll do. You hide here until I find out what my father is up to. Duty is pulling me both ways, David, between my father and between you. But you and I made a vow to honor and protect each other on pain of death. And I will honor that vow. The author says Jonathan loves David as much as he loves himself. And he swears his love to David again here in the field. Then Jonathan says, day after tomorrow, go hide behind that big stone over there. I'll come here to practice my archery. I'll shoot three arrows and tell my boy to run, get them. If I tell him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, nearer to me, then you'll know that all is well. But if I tell him, look, the arrows are farther away, then you'll know I'm telling you to run away for your life is in danger. So David hides in the field. Jonathan goes to the new moon feast and sits across from his father. King Saul does notice that David's place is empty, but he figures David must be ritually unclean. He thinks maybe he had sex and is in the required waiting period before he can participate in the new moon celebration. But on the second day of the celebration, David's place is empty again. So King Saul asks Jonathan, where's David? And Jonathan gets a little flustered and starts ad-libbing. He says, Uh, David begged me to let him go to Bethlehem. He said, we're having a family reunion, so please let me escape. Escape? Oh my, you can almost see Jonathan clap his hand over his mouth and turn nine shades of red. 
that tore it. King Saul is enraged. He starts shouting expletives at Jonathan and verbally abusing him to the point, I can't even repeat in class what he says. You'll have to read it for yourself in 1 Samuel chapter 20. He shouts, you worthless, worthless son, you've chosen that son of Jesse over your own future. You will never be king as long as he lives. I tell you now, bring him here at once. He is a dead man walking. And Jonathan shouts back, why should David be put to death? What has he done? But King Saul grabs his spear and throws it at Jonathan, his own son. Oh my goodness. Notice that King Saul does not call David by his name, but calls him that son of Jesse. Be sure to notice when that happens in biblical stories, calling someone a son of so-and-so without saying their name first. You can say David, the son of Jesse, but you can't say that son of Jesse. That's to say it without their name is an intentional insult. So there's now no doubt in Jonathan's mind that his father fully intends to kill David. Early the next morning, Jonathan takes his bow and arrows out to the field. He shoots his arrows and calls to his boy, run, go find the arrows. They're on the far side of you. Quick, hurry, don't stand still. And that poor boy, he finds the arrows and brings them back to Jonathan as fast as he can, not realizing at all what's going on. Jonathan gives all his gear to the boy and tells him to take it all back to town. After the boy leaves, David comes out from behind the stone and falls on the ground before Prince Jonathan and bows three times. Then they kiss each other and weep for their sorrow is great. They know this may well be the last time they ever see each other. Jonathan says to David, go in peace. For the Lord is witness of the love between you and me and between our descendants forever. And then Jonathan gets up and goes back to town. David, unfortunately, has nothing at all with him. No food, no water, no weapons, nothing. He flees south a couple of miles to a place called Nob, where there is a house of worship. The priest there is named Ahimelech. When David shows up alone and unarmed, though, the priest is alarmed. Where is your retinue, he says. Why are you alone? David, thinking quickly, says, uh, the king sent me on a very urgent, very secret mission. So I had to leave with no supplies and no weapons. And uh, I sent my men on ahead of me. They're waiting for me to bring them food. Do you have any food or weapons here? And Ahimelech says, well, I have nothing but the consecrated bread that lays on the table of presence before the Lord. Um, I have some day-old bread. I've replaced it with fresh bread, but you know no one except priests are supposed to eat it. Um, I might be able to bend the rules a little and give you the day-old bread, but only if your men have stayed ritually clean and have abstained from sex. And David says, oh, yes, yes, we're ritually clean. We always abstain from sex before a mission. So the priest gives him the holy bread. Now, as you know, there are no others with David. He's totally lying through his teeth just to get the priest to give him the bread. Then David says, have you any weapons here? And Ahimelech says, well, I have no weapons except uh, the sword of Goliath. And if anyone's entitled to that sword, it's you, since it's the very sword you used to cut off his head. So David takes the sword of Goliath as his own. 
Well, all is well, except for one fatal problem. King Saul's chief shepherd is also in the house of worship, and he witnesses all of this. His name is Doeg, and he is an Edomite. I have no idea why he would even be in the house of God, since as an Edomite, he would normally worship Molech or Chemosh, right? But he's there, and he hears everything that David and Ahimelech say. David leaves Nov and flees to Gath. Yes, Gath, one of the five big walled cities ruled by the Philistines. The ruler of Gath is named Achish. David tries to go incognito, so I'm pretty sure he hides Goliath's sword somewhere first. But unfortunately, he's recognized in the crowd anyway and is taken before Achish. The men tell Achish, this man is David, king of the land. The people say Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And of course, they're talking about Philistines, and David knows he's in deep trouble. Again, thinking quickly, he begins to act like a madman, drooling on himself and clawing at the walls. And Akish says, can't you see this man is a raving lunatic? Why bring someone like this to me? Get him out of here. And so David is saved. It's ironic under the circumstances that David is saved by mimicking severe mental illness when it is Saul who actually is mentally ill. It's also interesting that the Philistine servants call David king of the land, right? Clearly, David's reputation is outstripping Saul's, even among their enemies. And this is exactly why Saul is so intent on killing him. From Gath, David escapes to the cave of Adullam, between Gath and Bethlehem. Now, Israel is really small. The whole thing is like the size of New Jersey. And Gath is only about 20 miles from Bethlehem, which is itself only a few miles south of Gebeah, where Saul is. So everyone knows where everyone else is. You can't really keep it a secret. When men hear that David is camped in the cave of Abdullam, they begin to gather to his side. His brothers and all his relatives come, as well as every desperate man, every man in dire straits or in debt, and every man embittered against Saul flock to David. In all, David gathers a band of about 600 fighting men and their households. From there, David travels to Moab and entreats the king of Moab to give asylum to his parents to keep them safe from Saul. Remember that David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was from Moab, so perhaps he's still got family living there. And so the king of Moab grants David's request. But a man of God, a prophet named Gad, catches up with David and says, the Lord says you must not stay here. You must go back to Judah. So David goes and hides in a forest in the land of Judah. Hide is a relative word, of, for of course, King Saul has spies everywhere. And he hears where David is, and he knows how few men David has. Saul is furious, of course, that he hasn't been able to get his hands on David, and he begins to rail and rant at his court, saying, which of you has conspired against me? All of you. None of you told me when my own son Jonathan made a pact with that son of Jesse. You'd think the son of Jesse had promised you land and wealth if you'd conspire against me. Is no one on my side? Well, as it turns out, 
that chief shepherd, Doeg the Edomite, happens to be in King Saul's court. And he pipes up and says, I saw that son of Jesse with the priest Ahimelech, and I saw the priest give him provisions and weapons and even inquire of the Lord for him. So, of course, Saul has Ahimelech and all the priests and all his family hauled into court, and he accuses Ahimelech of treason. But Ahimelech, shaking in his boots, says, no, no, I'm, I know nothing of treason. David is your son-in-law. He moves at your command. I thought I was helping you. It is not at all unusual for me to be asked to consult the Lord when your men go on a mission. But Saul, in his rage, condemns Ahimelech and all his family to death, saying, you knew, you knew. And he commands his soldiers to kill Ahimelech and the priests instantly. But the men are fearful of killing the priests of the Lord, and they hesitate. So Saul hollers, you, Doeg the Edomite, you kill them. And that day, Doeg puts to death 85 priests of God. And then he goes to Nob, the priest's town, and kills every man, woman, infant, and toddler. Every ox and every sheep, every living thing is put to death. But one single son of Ahimelech escapes. His name is Abiathar, and he runs to tell David, and David welcomes him into his company. And that is how David comes to have a priest traveling with him. After that, David receives word that the Philistines are looting the, the town of Keilah. So David consults the Lord likely using the priest to be and his ephod and ask whether he should go fight the Philistines. And the Lord says, yes, go rescue the town of Keilah. But David's men push back saying, there's not enough of us. We aren't even safe here where we are in Judah. But if we go fight the Philistines, we'll be in even more danger. So David consults the Lord again, and again the Lord says, go now. I am about to give the Philistines over into your hand. So David and his men who trust him and the Lord do battle with the Philistines, and they take back the town of Keilah. Well, of course, all this is reported right back to King Saul, who claps his hands with glee. Aha! David has made a grave strategic error. He's no longer out in the open country where he can easily melt away. This time he's in a walled city and I've got him now. So Saul musters his troops and marches on Keilah to lay siege to David and his men. And David again consults the Lord asking, Lord, I've heard that Saul is marching here. Will the elders of Keilah turn against me when Saul comes? Will they hand me over? And the Lord says, yes, Saul is coming. And yes, the men of Keilah will hand you over to him. Now, you may think this sounds very ungrateful by the men of Keilah. But remember, Saul is not going to just come and politely ask for the elders of Keilah to hand David over. No, if he finds David there, he's going to destroy the whole town and everyone in it. The elders would be handing David over in self-defense. So David and his men once again run for their lives. This time, they land in the wilderness of Ziph. While they are there, Jonathan arranges to meet David in the forest to encourage him. 
Jonathan says, take heart, David. My father Saul will not find you. You will win. You will be king and I will be your second in command. Even my father knows this to be true. And again, the two men pledged themselves to each other before the Lord. After this, the men live, living in Zeph go to Saul and tattle on David, telling Saul exactly where David and his men are hiding. King Saul instructs them to keep feeding him intelligence on all the places David and his men are using as hideouts. When David hears his location has been betrayed, he and his men move south to the wilderness of Maon, always staying just one step ahead of Saul. But eventually, they're cornered. David and his men are on one side of a mountain and Saul's men are circling the mountain and just about to capture them when suddenly urgent word comes to King Saul, hurry, go, the Philistines are invading your land. And so Saul turns back and David is spared. After that, David moves down to the Engedi desert overlooking the Dead Sea. So as soon as Saul finishes dealing with the Philistine attack, David handpick, I mean David, Saul handpicks 3,000 men to go to Engedi to track David down. They check the sheepfolds, they check the many caves, they are looking high and low. Finally, Saul goes into a cave to take a poop. He puts his cloak aside and squats down. Unbeknownst to him, David himself and some of his men are hiding in the back of that very cave. Saul can't see them in the darkness, but they can see Saul clearly silhouetted against the entrance of the cave. One of the men whispers to David, look, the Lord has given your enemy into your hand. What are you going to do? And David sneaks up to the front of the cave and stealthily cuts off the corner of Saul's cloak and sneaks back into place. Immediately, he feels remorse, saying, I'm ashamed I've done this to my master, the Lord's anointed. And David refuses to let the men kill Saul. This is really important insight into who David is and into his relationship with the Lord. If you remember way back to the story of David and Goliath, you'll realize that David has always had a bedrock sense of the presence of the Lord. David understands at a deep level that all power and glory belong to the Lord and not to him. He's just a chosen vessel. Even revenge belongs to the Lord, not to David. If David is to be victorious in battle, it will be because he consulted the Lord first and is obedient to the Lord's response. If David is to be king, it will be the Lord's doing. For David knows he must never, ever take matters into his own hands. He keeps messing up, as he did here, cutting off Saul's robe in a statement of power over him and thereby shaming him. But he's trying to learn, and he repents immediately. After Saul leaves the cave, David comes out and calls, My lord, the king! Startled, Saul turns around and there is David kneeling before him with his face to the ground. And David says, why are you listening to the lies people are telling you? Don't believe those who say I intend to cause you harm. Look, 
The Lord delivered you into my hand in this very cave, and I have done you no harm. See, I, I only cut off a corner of your cloak. Why are you seeking for a dead dog like me? I'm even less than a dog. I'm a mere flea compared to you. And I love you as my father. I would never harm you. And Saul is pierced to the heart with remorse. He says, is that you, my son, David? And he begins to weep. He says to David, you are more in the right than I. You have repaid me good every time I have done evil towards you. You could have killed me in there, but you've proven you're not my enemy. I know, David, I know that someday you will be king and that your descendants will be kings after you. Please swear to me now that you will not kill my descendants nor blot my name from under heaven. And David makes this promise to Saul. And Saul and his men turn back for home, while David and his men go back to their stronghold. After that, the prophet Samuel dies, and all of Israel gathers to mourn him. David, of course, can't show up there, so David goes to the wilderness of Paran, which is way south of the Dead Sea. Some of your Bibles change that to say he goes to the wilderness of my own, which is very nearby. And that's what the Septuagint substitutes since Paran is so far away. But I think the older Masoretic text, which says Paran, is probably correct. I think David goes all the way down to the wilderness of Paran to mourn Samuel. And I suspect he stays there for several weeks. But eventually, of course, David has to come back. It's still not safe for him to come out of hiding. Saul is obviously not trustworthy. David and his men have to come up with some means of getting food and supplies. So apparently they set up a sort of protection racket. They protect towns and landowners from the Philistines. And in return, they ask for support in the form of food and supplies from those they protect. One such landowner is an arrogant, brutish man named Nabal, a name which actually means brute or fool in Hebrew. When David sends his men to collect a donation of food and supplies from Nabal, Nabal says, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Oops, there's that insult again. And he refuses to give David's men anything. David's men whirl around and return to David. David is appalled. His men hadn't asked for anything specific. They didn't set a price. They just asked for a donation to the cause from a man whose flocks and herds they've been protecting at the risk of their own lives. David is incensed at Naval's response, and he swears that by the end of the day, Naval will have nothing but, quote, a single pisser against the wall, end quote. Yikes. Well, Naval's servants are equally horrified at what Naval says to David's men. David, after all, is equal to the king. They run to Abigail, Naval's wife, and tell her she's got to do something and do it quick. They assure her that David and his men have done nothing but good for Naval. They've protected his flocks. They've not stolen anything. They deserve to be given gifts. Abigail is beautiful, it says, but it also says she has a fine mind. 
The Hebrew here means she's intelligent, shrewd, prudent, and wise. Here again is a strong woman about to take charge. She quickly gathers 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five dressed sheep, five bags of grain, a hundred raisin cakes, and 200 fig cakes, and has them loaded up on donkeys. Then she runs to meet David and his men and head them off. When she meets them, she flings herself to the ground and says, it was my fault, my Lord, all mine. Please let me speak. Please do not listen to my husband. He is a scoundrel of a man, a fool, just like his name. It was my fault for not being there when your men arrived. But thank the Lord, he has kept you from doing something rash. For if you take revenge on my husband, you will be guilty of murder, for it was not his fault. Well, Abigail's argument may be a little suspect. I'm not sure she can be faulted for not being at home when all this went down, but this is exactly the right thing to say to David. It reminds him that he's about to take revenge for himself. He remembers that he must trust God to both provide for him and if any revenge is to be taken, it must be by the Lord's hand alone. David lifts Abigail and blesses her for her wisdom and insight, and he sends her home in peace. When Abigail arrives home, she tells her husband Nabal all that has transpired, and Nabal realizes what a close call he's had, and he literally has a heart attack. It says his heart turns to stone within him, and he dies 10 days later. When David hears of Nabal's death, He sends messengers to entreat Abigail to marry him. For you see, Saul has taken David's wife, Michal, and given her to another man. Of course, men have many wives in this day anyway. David has already married a woman named Ahinoam, whom he captured in battle. So it's entirely acceptable that David propose marriage to the widowed Abigail. And when Abigail hears David's proposal, she hurries to his side and becomes his wife. What a story, right? In our breakout sessions right now, we're going to give some thought to the whole idea of vengeance belonging to the Lord and not to us. In the questions, I use the word vengeance to describe what the Lord reserves to himself and the word revenge to describe the actions we take on our own behalf, because it seems to me If you dig into what's underneath those words, what the Lord has in mind and what he does versus what we have in mind and what we do, I think they might be two very different things. I don't know if you've noticed yet in these these, um, classes and breakout groups, but I don't throw you very many softballs. Um, (laughs) I try, I try to make sure that these are not sappy questions. I hate sappy questions in Bible studies. Um, I, I want to make sure that we are facing the hard stuff and looking at it honestly, and that we don't necessarily have to know all the answers. For me, the answer is God is good all the time. All, all the time. <laughs> And, and, um, and I dwell rooted in the knowledge, the sure knowledge, God is good 
and God intends to bless us all. So I'm not scared to look at these scary things. It's just what it is, what it is. And if I don't understand it, I think about it every once in a while and move on. Um, so, so what did you guys come up with in this discussion? That the only time that how quick God acted with Saul, because he gave Saul clarity of his mind when David said, look, I got, got your cloak, could have got you. And God gave him clarity of mind for that moment so that they could have a good conversation. And then it sounds, you know, but he didn't like cure him of his mental illness because his mental illness came back. You know, he went right back to acting the way he was acting before. So I think that that's important. God doesn't always take away what's bothering people to make them better. He just gives them he gives them the ability to function as necessary, I think is what I hear you saying. Right. That's really that's really an interesting observation, Renee. And that um, it makes me think the fact that this conversation apparently took place in front of all the men, um, that might have also helped even Saul's men to understand more what was going on behind the scenes that David was not um, actively trying to usurp the throne and that Saul had these moments of clarity when he saw that. But we also were talking about in the context of, of, you know, how we would relate to an abuser, that it was interesting that David did not, you know, go back to the palace and think, okay, all was forgiven. He knew Saul well enough. He knew that he was volatile and unpredictable and dangerous. And so while that particular conversation ended peacefully, David did not trust Saul enough to go back and resume his position in the, in the palace. That's really important when it comes to an abuser, right? Yeah. There's, there's, you, you need to, to protect yourself. Right. And, but there, there seems to be a, a difference between um, protecting ourselves and drawing healthy boundaries and, you know, exiting bad situations and um, what we would think of as revenge, right? Uh, clearly, um, we all know what revenge. What does what does revenge typically look like when it's when it's us when it's human? It's not always easy to tell, though. Another thing we discussed was, um, you know, it seems like one could argue that uh, if David that David could have been protecting himself by killing Saul in the cave, that that could have been instead of revenge, that could have been an act of protecting himself. Yeah. And so why did David not see it that way? Well, I think at the moment, Saul was not an immediate threat in the position that he was in the cave. And so that would have been somewhat premeditated, if you will. That would have fallen into revenge. Yeah. not allowing God to have vengeance. So so think about this, because um, Woody's got a good point. Um, I think Woody is perhaps stepping back and taking a longer view of the relationship 
not that not that David, don't let me put words in your mouth, Woody, but not that David was in any danger that second from Saul while Saul's taking a poop, but that David was in general in in danger from Saul and therefore it could have been considered um, self-defense. Is that where you were going with that, Woody? Yes, absolutely. That, that, like you said, at that second, he was not in danger. But I mean, my gosh, look at the whole situation. Saul has pursued him and, and basically has him surrounded with Saul's men and, the, and trapped in this cave. So I could easily make an argument that killing Saul would have been a matter of protecting himself. Yeah. It also could be um, a situation that God had presented to David that as gift. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, go ahead. I was going to say it was interesting that David felt in talking to his men, because his men were saying, you know, this is your moment. This is your opportunity. Kill him. And David demurred on that because he did not feel God was calling on him or hadn't given him the okay to do that. And yet in that moment, at least from the way that I could see the story, he did want some form of personal sense of revenge or, 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 you know, a, a momentary victory by going up and cutting off the corner of the cloak. And that in that moment, the motivation behind that was that he was going to be able to use that to humiliate Saul at some point or delegitimize him. But then he had this change of heart. And so when he did come out of the cave, it was more, you know, look, I'm, I did this to prove to you that I mean you no harm. Now, whether that was the reason he did it in the first place, probably not. And, and, and it was more a matter of, that was his own little act of revenge that was much shorter of a, a definitive act of self-protection slash revenge by killing Saul. And yet David felt like that he had sinned in doing that. He repented. He felt like that, and even that was going too far. Yeah, and, and I think he was, he was looking at how he felt even more than the act itself. And, and why did he feel like he had gone too far? Is this because he had, he had disrespected Saul by cutting off a part of his cloak? Yes. Yeah, I see uh, Yeah, de definition of revenge is usually taken for... Uh, insult, injury, or other wrong, um, David was uh, David was trying to figure out why Saul was trying to kill him, right? That's the way I see it. I mean, you got the mental illness factor. Uh, what, you know, what, you know, obviously David was scared, but that doesn't mean that uh, he was justified to take revenge or anything. You know, he was still trying to figure out, again, after the point of, uh, of confronting him, you know, why are you, why are you trying to do this to me? Yeah, so, I think that there is a distinction in David's mind um, between Saul and other people. Um, I think if this had been, been a Philistine king, for example, in this cave, do you think that David's reaction might have been different? Yeah. 
He he frequently made reference to the fact that Saul was God's anointed. Right. And I think in his mind that maybe made Saul off limits. And yet at this and at this time, David was had been anointed by Samuel and the spirit had left Saul and David knew this. And yet True. David still persisted in calling Saul the Lord's anointed that that it it kind of makes me think of the once once gifted always gifted kind of idea that we've studied you know that the Lord doesn't take it away that just because Saul made the choices that he made or had the illness that he had did not negate what the Lord had done do you think also part of it oh sorry Renee Um, David was respecting his position as king, even though he didn't deserve that respect. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that there's something even, and and I think we we sometimes mess this up because we respect the position um, and separate it from the person. I think David saw it as a single wholeness, that he was respecting the person of Saul as the Lord's king, not separate from Saul. You know, not it's not um, that he saw it, uh, them as integral to each other. You know, the position and and the person. And um, do you think that that part of that also tied into his relationship with Jonathan? That Saul was Jonathan's father. Do you? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, obviously, Jonathan still. I mean, was was very torn between his close friendship to David, but also his respect and love for his father. Yes. And, and David saw Saul as a surrogate father as well. He says so in, in this, you know, and so that's another position person uh, reason that David would hold Saul, Saul as um, off limits for vengeance. Right. I mean, I, I get the impression that the Lord would have had to have been pretty direct with David telling him to go do something to Saul specifically and probably more than once before David was going to go do it, you know? Um, And so one of the questions uh, kind of got into this a little bit, the second question about the whole situation with Abigail and Nabal um, about why Abigail would saw David's action in coming against Naval. If he had attacked Naval and killed him, in Abigail's mind, that would clearly have brought down blood guilt. It would have been murder. Why did she think that? Maybe she knew he had a mental illness too. Hmm. And that she'd been protecting him. So she knew more information about Naval than so than David did. That's very interesting. Well, they, David was—I mean, that that was no uh, equal act of retribution. That was that was over the top. Yeah, he was gonna like you know, Naval didn't give him supplies, and so he's gonna like wipe out his household and everybody in it, right? Right. Yeah. And that would have been good. That, that would have been more vengeance, and it would have been it would have been David's personal vengeance rather than uh, something God told him to do. 
And that was really ended up being the point, right? That was the big deal. That it would have been. Yeah. Go ahead. Somebody, I hear somebody. Okay. Well, and when I was looking into revenge and vengeance, uh, what I, what I came to conclusion, I came to, which is maybe, you know, I obviously open to discussion is the revenge is more uh, personal and, and it does. And sometimes it's much more spontaneous. It's, you know, and it does result from, shall we say bloodlust and um, it's to get even, whereas vengeance is a punishment um, you know, and, uh, just to restore justice and, you know, killing Naval was not going to have any kind of effect like that. It was because David was, well, he was ticked off and said, how dare he, you know? And so, and then also in our discussion, Julia brought up that, well, I mean, one of the reasons perhaps that Naval, uh, refused is because there had been no contract that, you know, it was just considered that was a nice thing to do, but there was no contract that said, okay, David and his troops are going to protect you. And then you have to respond by giving us supplies. So Naval was legally, perhaps it was okay for him to say no. And yeah, so for David to, that's for David right. to take revenge for David to take revenge, uh, that would that's not doing anything except bringing it down on his own head. Although I'm wondering in the, in the, I think that that would be uh, how we would see it in all our culture. I'm wondering if in that middle Eastern or near Eastern culture, if the, you know, the whole idea of um, owing someone hospitality in return for having been protected might have been more of a big deal and perceived as a social contract, you know, um, anyway, in this situation, but perhaps not worthy of, of death. <laughs> yeah, you know, who's to know, but one of Besides, the, the phrase that I think is very telling, and that is the phrase getting even. And that's, yeah. and that's the crux of this matter here, because when David was slighted by Naval, David's status was decreased and Naval was increased. And revenge is an effort to get even we use that term specifically for that, you know, and yet it's perceived by the other person as pushing them down, right? Um, and so it continues to do this kind of thing, go back and forth. But when we're getting even, are we raising up ourselves or are we raising up the Lord? Ourselves. It, that 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 sort of plays into the whole issue of the honor shame culture of the ancient Near East, where you know it's a zero sum game. So that if one person gains honor, another one loses. And the fact that you know, I I kind of went back to what the point you had made about both Saul and Nabal referring to David not by his name but as that son of Jesse. That that was a deliberate insult, which would play into this honor shame dynamic that not only was he not going to give them anything, but he also insulted David in front of his men or to his men. And that that culturally would probably have demanded a response, which Abigail understood and fortunately intervened. Uh, he, He had insulted his, insulted David's honor. Yes. And that brings us, to the point of this whole exercise. 
And that is that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. We use that term all the time by Barb thinks we use Mm -hmm. that term all the time with respect to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about. We are so accustomed to talking about the upside down kingdom of heaven, but Jesus was not instituting a new kingdom. The kingdom of God has always been upside down. And that's what's happening here is that in the telling of this story, as we hear about David being a man after God's own heart, David understands that there is no such thing as getting even with another person if already you have recognized that all glory and honor belongs to the Lord in the first place, that there is no way to shame you. Even David forgets that sometimes. Pardon? He would would forget it, right? Yeah. And this is the point of the story. And this is what I want you to take away with you and reflect on that if you feel shamed or put down or the need to get even, that is a really good measure of how much of the glory and power you have retained for yourself from God. Mm -hmm. It's, And it has nothing to do with whether we do boundaries or protect ourselves from abusers. It has to do with recognizing that that is a red flag that we have not actually believed and we don't actually believe that that any response to that other person belongs to the Lord. So I'm going to leave you here with that by witty um, and let you just kind of ponder that because this is a really big deal concept. And we've touched on it in other ways. When we talked about Moses and humility, it's part of humility. It's part of what we're called to. And it's part of the upside down kingdom of God. And it has radical implication for our lives. And it has radical implication for our nation if we actually believe it. Because in responding to the Philistines or the Amalekites or anybody, um, over and over and over again, we see that the Lord is the one doing the fighting, that the power to sway the battle belongs to the Lord and not to us. In fact, I think it is highly likely that we will most often be the weaker party if we have been following the Lord faithfully in the upside downness of his kingdom, in humility, if we have been faithful in our humility, if we have been willing to give the glory and the power, the real power to defend us to the Lord. It bears thinking about. There certainly have been times throughout this Old Testament, Old Testament Hebrew Bible study that we have 
seen the Lord place a great deal of emphasis on building up the nation and building up the soldiers and building up the army, you know, there's times the Lord says to do that. But even when they have been built up, very often they were still the underdog, right? And and always, no matter how many soldiers they fielded, if they felt like, oh boy, we're stronger and we're going to go into battle and they didn't talk to the Lord, the battle went against them. The, the Lord is not about the relative numbers. The Lord's power is not dependent on our strength. And, and that is really, truly a blessing. Yes. In disguise for some people. Yes. Because uh, if you compare us to like maybe the Muslim faith where people get very bent out of shape, if, you know, you speak bad about the Quran or Muhammad or whatever, those people, I mean, they're taking a lot of vengeance and revenge. Yes. And we do too, in our own ways, we do, we may do it differently. Um, but, but yes, this is a, this is a universal concept about God and who God is and who we are in relation to God. And, and it, we, our whole culture, Everything about us is geared towards making ourselves idols. And, and so it's, this is, this is a, con, a lesson to constantly have in front of us. This is the kind of thing to put a sticky note on the bathroom mirror, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it's a, I'm going to leave you with that. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I do know the concept is important. And I love you and I'll see you next time.